Denise from Black Label Society and SpeedX, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, this is Al Petrari from the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and you're with my buddy John over at Iron City Rocks. See you guys soon. Hi, this is Rick Emmett of Triumph, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hello and welcome to episode 66 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John. The Iron City Rocks podcast is a podcast devoted to promoting Pittsburgh's rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues music scene. Episode 66, we had the awesome opportunity to talk to founding member of the rock band Triumph, Rick Emmett. Rick will be coming into Pittsburgh on the 24th to play the Club Cafe in an acoustic show, but we couldn't pass up the opportunity to talk to such a guitar legend. So before we get into the interview, we're going to play a song from a band that will be coming to the Shadow Lounge later on this week. This is a band called Rebel Inc. out of Baltimore, Maryland. Give it a listen. Attention, brothers and sisters. Take a look around. We are killing the future. Killing the Yeah. 
All right, again, that was Rebel Inc. from Baltimore, Maryland. They'll be playing the Shadow Lounge on the 17th of September. Also, a relatively busy week for good rock shows. Coming the 16th, uh, one of my all-time favorites, Rush, so you can find me there at the Console Energy Center. And also the same night at the Altar Bar, a band called Flaw. You can find out more information about them at myspace.com forward slash flaw. And then October doesn't slow down at all. Black Label Society returns to the... uh, Amphitheater at Station Square, the Trib Total Media Amphitheater, Black Label Society featuring Zach Wilde, formerly the Ozzy Osbourne Band, and Pittsburgh's own Nick Cat on guitar. So what promises to be a great show is they bring their Berserkus tour in with uh, Children of the Bodom, Clutch, and Two Cents. So going to be a great show. And then the following weekend, uh, maybe on a slightly lighter note, uh, the Goo Goo Dolls will be playing at St. Vincent's in La Trobe. And then the Tuesday after that, uh, October 26th, a show that... Uh, I'm actually really, really glad to see coming into Pittsburgh. It's a show called Experience Hendrix. It's going to be uh, brought to us by the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust. I believe that's at the Benetton. That's a show that's been being put on by Jimi Hendrix's family, and it's going to feature a lot of really influential musicians such as Eric Johnson, Steve Vai, uh, Chris Layton, formerly of Double Trouble, and a real special appearance by Billy Cox, who played with Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock and also in the Band of Gypsies, uh, Johnny Lang and... Uh, couple other great ones. Kenny Wayne Shepherd is also in the bill, so uh, kind of a can't-miss night. I believe it's just all Hendrix wall-to-wall. So, again, that's the 26th of October, uh, and it doesn't slow down from there. You get into November, um, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra makes their annual uh, Christmas time run back through the uh, Northeast, so they'll be coming to the Console Energy Center for two shows on November 21st. It's a Sunday, and then uh, Another one of my all-time favorites, Joe Satriani, returns to the Palace in Greensburg on December 6th. So no shortage of stuff just because the weather's turning a little bit cold. A lot of great music out there. And again, Rick Emmett will be coming in on the 24th of September to play the Club Cafe. So before we get into the interview with Rick, we're going to play a little, uh, couple of uh, Triumph's bigger hits just to kind of whet your appetite, and then we'll talk with Rick. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to welcome to the show a great honor, Rick Emmett. How are you doing today, Rick? I'm great, John. Thank you. Wonderful. Um, you're going to be coming into the Fair City of Pittsburgh um, on September 24th to play the Club Cafe. And uh, I think a lot of people may um, have a little bit confused on what happened to you post-triumph. I, I know you kind of went down a jazz path. 
Um, so really just wanted to kind of touch base, get back in touch, and, and kind of re-educate your, us on what you're up to. And also, and talk just a little bit about what's going on with Triumph. But uh, kind of, can you give us an idea of kind of what you're what you're up to right now as a solo artist or with the Strung Out Troubadours? Well, uh, geez, uh, right now um, I ended up sort of doing different projects at different times with different people, and then they come out into the public in different ways. So I have the Strung Out Troubadours thing, which I do with Dave Dunlop, and. Uh, you know, those are sort of my studio, his studio. We write some songs together, and those things come out. I make my own little records and, and put them out and have them on my website. And I've kind of fallen a little bit behind on that. I have an album that's almost ready to come out to the world, but it's it's been sitting waiting to get overdubs and, and mixing for over a year because I ended up in a guitar trio thing with a guy named Pablo and, and another fellow named Oscar Lopez. Mm-hmm. And that project sort of took over my life for a while where we wrote, we recorded. It was a bit of a whirlwind. And then they, when the Canadian agent announced that this thing was happening, it got booked like crazy in soft cedars all across Canada. Okay. So we toured all through last year. And then the, the album was up for Junos, which is sort of the equivalent of uh, American Grammys. And, so that that got a lot of attention and it ate up a lot of my time and energy. And um, I mean, I'm still going like I'm, I'm going out this weekend to play a show with those guys. And and um, I did a rock band project with a guy named Mike Schott, and it was called Airtime, and it got released over in Europe and in Japan. And uh, you know, I, I put it up for sale off my own website, and it did okay. You know, mm-hmm. we made our money back, and and uh, I kind of got my rock and roll yeah yeah out doing that. Um, and you mentioned the jazz thing, and that's just a kind of a weird aberration of, uh, I put out records and I wouldn't necessarily think of them as having any particular kind of stylistic ghettoization kind of quality to them. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, you put out the record and then it's just which, which community might uh, embrace it and where might it get some airplay. And it just happened that the smooth jazz sort of radio stations liked some of the stuff and then even when Dave and I the Troubadour stuff came out which we didn't think of it as smooth jazz at all but of course it wasn't really heavy duty it was nice and you know acoustic guitars and such so that they kind of went oh we can play this in our format and so you end up in a format even though you didn't necessarily kind of gear towards it and then before you know it geez you're being nominated for awards and you're going to awards banquets things and you're winning some pieces of plastic and you know, that now your bio is going to say, yeah, Smooth Jazz Water winner from, you know, and you're going to go, oh, oh boy, I hope I don't get pigeonholed into this. And, you know, any more than I didn't want to get pigeonholed as a guy wearing spandex pants and jumping around between <laughs> five spots in the 80s, you know, but you just kind of can't help it. It's the nature of the beast, you know. Yeah, somewhere in in the middle maybe the real Rick Emmett lies. That's actually, I, I really appreciate your answer because the kind of connotation that I got was, oh, he's off doing this kind of Al Di Miola sort of thing, you know, and as a rock music fan, you you maybe don't take the time to actually go and listen to it. Now, luckily, the Internet is, you know, giving us that exposure to be able to, you know, you can go to your site and, and check out the music and, you know, there's MySpace and YouTube and all that stuff. So it really allows us to see what you're up to, which is great. Um, the the Strung Out Troubadours, you said that was Dave Dunlap. Um, what's Dave's background? 
Dave was a guy that I met at the National Guitar Summer Workshop like years and years ago. And it might have been back as far as about 92 or 93 or something like that. And then um, he started playing with me around 96. He was like when I, I would hire another guitarist to be in my rock band, my touring rock band. And mm-hmm. so he was the guy that I ended up starting to hire. He knew the bass player that was playing with me and they played together and gone to college together and and um, so, and it's just kind of been with me ever since. And then we got to a point in our live shows where we'd do a little kind of acoustic guitar moment together where we could do a little duet thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we kept saying, gee, this is a lot of fun. You know, we should maybe try and get together sometime in the studio and, and, and write some things and, and record some things. And so one thing led to another, and that's how it started. And then, you know, you search around for a name, you got to try and label it and market it somehow or other. And so... Yeah. You know, guitars, strings, you know, addicted to playing guitar. Okay, we're strung out troubadours. You know, you know they just call it trudes now because I think uh, guys that were booking us would get a look at the name of the actors. <laughs> oh, boy, I think their writer is going to be a little unreasonable. I hope they don't want heroin in the yeah. backstage green room, you know. Yeah, not with the, since the purple spandex, maybe. Um, <laughs> now, you, you've been around, I, I remember... Um, you know, especially like Guitar Player Magazine, kind of seeing seeing your face dawn their magazine quite a bit. But as sort of myself, a child of the 80s, you were always a name that I think when people brought up, people said, yeah, he's an amazing guitar player and, and just as many uh, props for your singing ability. But I, I don't ever remember if you sat down and said, okay, name the 10 best guitar players of the genre that your name necessarily came to the forefront until someone brought it up. Is that... Are you comfortable with that role, or I mean, did you see yourself as kind of a guitar hero, or were you just more into the songwriting and you know being a band thing? Well, I, I you know, to, to me, I always thought of myself as a singer, songwriter, guitarist, you know, and uh, songwriter would have been the most important thing, and I mm-hmm. still think writing is more important to me, and I think you know my musicianship is more important to me than my guitar playing. Mm-hmm. Um, which is to say, you know, I'm just, I'm a fairly limited guy in terms of my musicality. Like, I'm not very good in front of a keyboard, and I'm not, I can't play a, a lead instrument to save my life. But, so, you know, I do end up being guitar-centric. But I never really wanted to be known as a guitar hero or a guitar weenie if it meant that I was, that was going to be at the expense of, you know, my, my songwriting and my musicianship. And, you know, I mean, having said that, you know, I got my fair share of recognition on a guitar level. And, yes, I wrote for Guitar Player Magazine for mm-hmm. 12 or 13 years there. And, and so, you know, you get a certain kind of profile. Or, you know, when you're the guy that has a column in Guitar Player Magazine, if I go to a Pat Metheny show and I say, hey, you think I can get backstage? Pat Metheny knows who I am because I'm sure. the guy that had a column in Guitar Player Magazine. So it was kind of a door opener for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be able to get to meet and, and, and know, you know, other guitarists who were, you know, way, way up that food chain of, of guitar heroism than me. You know, like Steve Morse came, came to town and stayed at my house and played on my album. And, wow. you know, I mean, he he's one of the greatest guitar heroes of, you know, in history, you know. So it was nice to be able to rub shoulders with dudes like that. But I, I have an anecdote to tell you, which is kind of cool. Like, I had been a Yamaha endorsing artist for something like 25 years. Okay. And 
when the Triumph reunion happened a couple of years back, um, the, the Yamaha guys were sort of here in Canada, were kind of at a crossroads, and they were kind of going, well, you know, they're not really much. We've done everything we can possibly do for you, Rick, and, and my deal was up with them, and I went, yeah, okay. And, and uh, so one thing led to another, and I was thinking, you know, it might be nice if I was strapping on an old Les Paul again. Yeah. You know, it's... Uh, so I got in touch with the Gibson people, and one thing led to another, and so, you know, I, I sort of became a Gibson guy. Well, uh, it turns out, a few months back, Gibson.com had one of those kind of, um, uh, you know, online reader survey kinds of things, named, you know, the greatest guitar players of all time. And so... To my great surprise, but quite, you know, my delight, you know, my name ended up number seven on the list of the top ten guitar players of all time. So, you know, right there with, like, there's Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck and, you know, Jimi Hendrix and and then a couple of real Gibson-esque kind Mm -hmm. of guys, you know, Warren Haynes and uh, uh, Joe Balamassa, you know, like, real, real Gibson dudes and Gibson endorsers. But... Fine, golly, there's my name in the list, and I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. So, I mean, I'm not above any of that sort of ego. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, how could you? How could you not? I mean, if you're on a list that involves Warren Haynes and Joe Bonamassa, you you got to stop right there and just soak that up. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's... So tough. Now, your is, is Gibson working on on a model for you of the Les Paul, or um, do you just use a standard kind of off the shelf or a custom shop or? Uh, well, I have um, a couple of Les Pauls that I like that are really, um, I think one of them is a cup and shop, and one of them was a sort of a limited edition. They're both chambered Les Pauls, so they're lighter. Okay. Because after all, you know, my back and my neck are 57 years old, so, you know, I, I can't really handle the heavy-duty weight of the of the full, the full weight ones anymore. But they're just standard sort of Les Paul standards, and... Um, uh, yeah, you know, they're just kind of the light chambered ones, and um, I like the 60s neck, you know, so these were models that were sort of 63 issues, like okay. um, one black, and one of them is a kind of a coffee color, custom color, so it must have come from the custom shop, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I got my eye on, they got another model that I really like, which is a 356, which mm-hmm. is, a, it's kind of like a, a shrunk down uh, 335. Okay. So on its on its way to less Paul size. But, so I've been kind of you know eyeing one and hoping for one. And I don't know if uh, Gibson just recently had a I think like a sort of a disaster in the Memphis uh, factory. There was a flood. Yeah. And so you know they've kind of been in panic mode for the last little while. And the custom shop was not affected, but of course they've had to pick up a lot of the slack while the standard factory has been trying to get back online. So. Um, that, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I, I know that they approached me and asked me if I would do a blog for them. And I went, yeah, okay, I'll send you off a few things. And when you guys get your website redone and you want to have me up there on a blog, sure, I'd be happy to do it. And I think it's one of those kinds of things where, you know, scratch their back and then they might turn around and scratch mine. And I don't necessarily need a heavy-duty custom model, but um, mm-hmm. that wouldn't be... Wouldn't be <laughs> wouldn't be outside my desire to get my hands on one of those nice CS three fifty sixes. Yeah. Does the uh, does the chamber less Paul? Does it affect the sound much? Do you get uh, more of a hollow body effect, or does it do much to your sustain? 
Uh, it doesn't really affect um, sustain too much because of the just. I mean, the way Les Paul is designed and the kind of pickups you put in it. Like I do put in the slightly higher output um, okay. ceramic magnet kind of pickups, so that they're, they're really screaming rock style kind of pickups. I don't have the the uh, humbuckers that are like the you know the retro fifty sevens or anything sure. like that. Um, oh, I have a three thirty five. Uh, actually, it's a three forty five that that has. Um, more humbucking pickups, and I have a double neck as well that has the standard straightforward humbuckers in it. But um, the, yeah, your question is actually fairly astute. That um, as you can well imagine, when you chamber a guitar, it, and I'm going to you know enter into the world of onomatopoeia here. Like <laughs> you know, when when you pick notes on a on a Les Paul, they have a nice sweet round kind of thunk to them. Mm-hmm. On the front end of the note, and then they have tons and tons of sustain. Sure. But when you pick a note on a 335, the thunk on the front end of the note is a little bit more of a of a plunk. It's a little bit more of a pop, and it, you know it's not anywhere near as bright and brutal as a as a Fender's guitar's first front end of the note would be, like a Tele or a Strat. Sure. But you're you're heading towards a little tiny bit more of a twang or uh, on that on on the pluck note. Okay. And um, it it it, uh, it has something to do with the arch top design of the guitar. It has something to do with the fact that Gibson guitars have that set neck, mm-hmm. you know, all of those kinds of things. But you're you're dead on when you chamber a guitar. It does end up giving it a little bit more of an acoustic property, and then takes it a little bit more towards. And I've always loved the sound and the tone of 335s and, and sure. that whole range of, of guitars. It's just the Les Paul is the right size for me. Like I'm, I'm only five foot eight. So when I wear a three thirty five or a one seventy five or something, it just makes me look like I'm Mickey Rooney on <laughs> stage holding the guitar. Like it just dwarfs me, you know. Yeah. Whereas the Les Paul is just about the right size for a guy like that. Now, um, you, you mentioned uh, the reunion with Triumph a little bit back um, earlier this year. Uh, Guys, were you involved in the remixing, remastering process with the new Greatest Hits album, or was that uh, Mike and Gill's project? Oh, uh, the guys had been doing that for years, and even before we had our reconciliation, they had people working on that, and it was just a sort of a project that had been sort of crawling along, uh, you know, on the side. And you know, every year someone would approach me asking me, "Did I, you know, would I reconcile with the guys? Did I want to go into this Hall of Fame thing?" And for a lot of years, I was putting it off and putting it off. And then I got to a point where um, my younger brother was uh, actually really sick with cancer, and he was passing away. And you go through those kind of huge life changes. And he and I were sitting down talking about how you come to terms with certain things in your life, and you know, putting things in perspective and how do you deal with baggage and all of this stuff. And he was saying to me, you know, I think it would be great if you, you know, sort of face up to some of the stuff that you've been pushing away and, 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 and deal with it, you know. And I was going, oh, man, are you going to make this be about me? And he said, well, you know, I think I'd like to see it happen. You know, he said, I'm a fan of all that stuff that you guys did together, you know, what? You know, if you can't do it for yourself, do it for all the other people that would like to see it happen. So it was, you know, it, it kind of put a a moral thing on it all for me that that I had to try and figure out how to become a better man and be a giving kind of person and figure it all out. And so that's how it started. And then uh, once I was back in, 
And we're going to be starting to do some of these, yeah, okay, we'll go to that, you know, luncheon and we'll get a piece of plastic that tells us how great we are and how great we were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, we'll go to that judo thing and give you somebody a hand to something to tell us how great we were. And But I think in order to try and make it feel like the circle were complete and that we were doing this in an honorable kind of way, I think we all felt we had to get back up on stage and play together. Mm-hmm. And then I think... There was a real impetus, and you know, now I'm finally getting around to answer your question. Oh, take uh, your time. To, to, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to try and, and, and get that, that greatest hits album put out. And I think, especially for Gil, he felt like he wanted to have something that would be, uh, that would serve the, service the legacy of the act. You know, uh, and what did it be? And what did it done? And I think those guys, when they started it, it was back in the 90s. And they had a guy named Rich Chicky working on it from a sort of um, producer, engineer kind of point of view. And Rich was really into that whole thing of, all right, digital technology, we can expand the frequency range. Man, I can give this a bottom end that can work in 5.1. And so that had been the thrust. I had nothing to do with it, but that's where it had started. And in truth, uh, you know, when it finally, and I sat down and heard it for the first time and then realized the, the history of where it had come from and, Chicky's, you know, um, reasons for trying to get it to sound the way that it did and the way he mixed things and remixed things and left some parts out and added some other things in. And uh, I I kind of said, well, when, when the band played live, it was a three-piece band, and it was loud, you know. <laughs> we were an arena rock band. Mm-hmm. And his mixes are more of an arena rock kind of a audio experience than some of the very tidy records we had made and I'm thinking specifically of stuff that I really liked that we'd done that was like the Just a Game album had some really clean blending of acoustics and electric guitars, and then on the Allied Forces record we had some tracks where we'd really kind of uh, combined uh, acoustic and electric kinds of quality, but it makes those records tidier and smaller. They're not big and rocking and ugly, you know. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean ugly in a bad way. I mean ugly in a good way. Like sure. You know, when rock keeps going, you know, it's, it's brutal and it's massive and it gets in your face. And and I think Chicky did a nice job of of making a rock record that, you know, really does that. It, it really does move air. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing. But, you know, my sensibilities, you know, even back in Triumph, in the heyday, I did have slightly different sensibilities than Mike and Gil. And, and you know, that's how bands work. Different guys have different feels and different approaches to things. And I mean, even now, uh, if I'm going to listen to music from, from a recreational point of view, I'd probably pick a Steely Dan record or, or a Pat Metheny record before I would ever pick a Metallica record. You know sure. what I mean? So... It's just the way I am. It's the way I'm wired. It's the type of musician I am and kind of sound I like. So, you know, uh, I don't feel bad about the remixes at all. There's been, you know, controversy or, you know, tempest in the teapot kind of stuff where people go, oh, it's sacrilege for you to change mixes. I go, well, it's not like they took the old mixes and destroyed them. You know, yeah. I still like the old mix. It's still there. You can just listen to that one if you like. I think it'd be great, and I think one of the kind of cool things about digital technology now is that you could maybe have five different remixes or six different ones, and yeah. then people could start to really realize, wow, like there is a sort of an infinite number of ways that you can interpret and reinterpret. 
interpret material. Like even a, a recorded track it isn't it isn't carved in stone. You know, there's lots of choices you can make. Yeah, excellent. I, I would love to see someday, and I don't know anybody that would do this, but for the ability for the listener to remix, you know, to be able to kind of mix with that. I would love to be able to isolate different parts and things like that as a fan. I think that would be tremendous. But I, I think Bowie did that. I think Bowie did? had a, and I'm not, I'm not sure if he did it with a whole album, but uh, but I'm pretty sure he did it with at least a few tracks where they were put up on the Internet in some sort of a way off a website where, you could fiddle around with it. I don't know how much you could fiddle around mm-hmm. with it, but you were allowed to literally sort of multi-track fiddle and diddle and, and, uh, yeah. But I can't, I, I honestly, I don't know if it was multi-track or if it was maybe just a two-track mix and you could, you know, bend yeah. it and warp it depending upon how many parameters they've given you. But sure. I think Bowie did. Yeah. Interesting idea. Um, do you see um, you guys going back into the studio or, or maybe on a more extended tour in the future, or is it still kind of up in the air? Yeah, it's sort of up in the air, you know, and, and I think um, it, it's not really, it doesn't have a lot of altitude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we had a lunch with, uh, oh, we had a dinner actually with the Live Nation uh, guys in the summer, mm-hmm. and there was some conversation about and it was all just sort of um, brainstorming, you know, uh, well, let's chuck this one up into the air and see what we think of it. You know, and, and um, I don't know. I think we're sort of at a point where Gil feels pretty good that, you know, we've satisfied the the, the, the closing of the circle concept mm-hmm. of, you know, becoming friends again and, and, and you know, truly sort of uh, completing the circle. And then... Now this question of, well, are we going to go out and play? Well, does it make sense? Does it make sense from a financial point of view? Does it make sense from what the band would actually be able to deliver on stage in terms of, say, the production that we were known for and, you know, a a bunch of other kinds of things? I think Gil is pretty happy in the uh, life that he's got now where he's got a metalwork studio and a school and a production Mm -hmm. company, and I think he's working there you know, 12 hour days, you know, which is, the guy never lacked for work ethic, and so, you know, I'm sure he feels like he's fulfilled, and that he doesn't necessarily need to try and get himself, and it was, when we did the two shows in Sweden and Oklahoma, like, he had to work really hard, and and I give him a lot of credit for the amount of work, because he wasn't in shape as a drummer in any way, Yeah. you know, in any stretch of the imagination, so in order to, you know, be able to handle a 75, 80 minute you know, A and sing half the material. Like the guy had to like seriously woodshed for him. We had like I don't know forty rehearsals, something like that. Yeah. Know, for him to get himself back into shape. And then in the in the wake of it, he sort of um, kind of confided in me that that he hadn't really loved it. It wasn't like it was an interesting thing, but he didn't really feel like he was playing with the same reckless abandon that he'd had in his youth and he didn't feel like he was able to just really relax and enjoy it. He was kind of uptight and a little bit freaked out by all of it. And So, you know, um, I, you know, I would never want to ask either of those guys to do something that was making them feel uncomfortable or pushing them out of their comfort zone. You know, like, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter to me um, whether we play another show or not. Um 
But if, if you know, if the right situation came along and both of those guys were saying, look, we're totally into it, I would say, great, then let's do it because I'd be into it too. But I think part of it is that I've always maintained my, you know, gigging, going around playing shows, and yeah. I've played all kinds of different ones in, you know, in the last few decades. I've, you know, I've played electric band gigs, outdoor shows, little intimate acoustic things. I've played with orchestras. You know, I've, I've been in um, repertory companies and played like a tour where I played some Beatles stuff, and you know, I, like I've I've just done all kinds of things, and I just I just like to play guitar and sing and and make music, and and I am a live performer. I'm addicted to that, and, and you know, it'll it'll never. I don't think it'll ever go out of my blood. I think I'll always need it, but I think those guys they they don't need it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, you know, who knows? There's no doors closed. Yeah, all absolutely. options are open. Yeah, the only, the only thing as a fan I would request is if if there is another show, gets you know, get it on tape and uh, you know, get it out there on the DVD so we can enjoy it. Um, Rick, <laughs> Rick, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Again, you're coming in um, a little over two weeks from now to play the Club Cafe uh, with the Troops with Dave Dunlap. So uh, it's been an honor to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Again, Rick Emmett coming to the Shadow Lounge on the 24th of September. Going to be doing a s- acoustic show with Dave Dunlap as the Strung Out Troubadours, or the Troubs, as he mentioned. So you can get your tickets online. Uh, you can go to Opus One Productions and find out all the times, etc., for that show. We hope you enjoyed the show. You can visit us at ironcityrocks.com or follow us on any of the social networks at forward slash ironcityrocks. Uh, on our site, we've got a very comprehensive Pittsburgh concert calendar, uh, a lot of information about what's going on in the city musically. Uh, you can get uh, T-shirts and whatnot from our merchandise store. And if you're going to be doing any shopping, especially as the Christmas time does draw nearer, uh, we'd appreciate using some of our links They uh, just to help us out a little bit uh, financially. And uh, you don't have to pay any more to do it. So especially if you're going to like Amazon or iTunes or something, we'd appreciate you visiting our store. So... Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time.